You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 18th day of June 2012. I'd like to once again thank all of you for tuning in for today's episode of the podcast and invite all of you who have not yet done so to check out my website, CorbettReport.com, for previous episodes of this podcast, as well as other media that I've created in the past, including interviews, articles, videos, and editions of my radio program on Republic Broadcasting. So just a couple of notes to get into before we start today's episode. Firstly, on the note of Corbett Report Radio... As listeners to Corbett Report Radio will hopefully know by now, the program is shifting time slots this week. So from this week forward, instead of the 11 p.m. Central time slot that it had previously resided in, it is now moving to 9 p.m. Central, so two hours earlier. And hopefully for those of you who listen live in North or South America, that will make things even easier for a lot of you who, I know, the 11 p.m. slot was a little bit past your bedtime, depending on where you were. And hopefully this will make it easier for you to listen. And of course, for those of you in Europe, you will still have to be up at an ungodly hour of the morning in order to possibly listen to the uh, program. So unfortunately, that's just the way it is. But once again, moving to 9 p.m. Central on Republic Broadcasting, listen live at republicbroadcasting.org as we have an absolutely jam-packed transmission this week with some very interesting guests. And secondly, I just also wanted to take a moment to thank the folks at the Smells Like Podcast podcast, which is available at smellslikepodcast.com. And if you go there right now, you'll be able to find at the top of the page their latest episode, episode five, is an interview with yours truly, and it lasts just under an hour. So I would suggest that people go and check that out. I start with uh, the usual talk about how I got into all of this, and then we talk about human awareness and consciousness and the role of the media in spreading awareness and 9-11 and other topics besides. So I think it's a very interesting conversation, and I hope you'll check that uh, podcast out. And if you like what you hear, perhaps you can sign up and listen to Guy and James on a weekly basis. But having said all of that, as always, we have a ton of information to get through, so let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 231 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Revolution of the Mind. Now, I hope you were tuned in for last week's episode of this podcast, episode 230, Social Engineering 101, because in that episode, we started to draw the broad outlines of the problem that's facing us as a society as a civilization, as, indeed as a species on this planet over the next half century, as we start sliding down that slippery slope towards the transhumanist ideal or the neo-humanist ideal or whatever it is they're calling it. And we examined, for instance, the, the ideas of groups like Global Futures 2045, and we located the most recent instantiation of these ideals in a much older ideology that can be traced back through writers like uh, Lord Bertrand Russell and H.G. Wells, etc., to, for at least a century, and we also listened to an intriguing clip from a very interesting interview with Philip Collins, who was talking about social control over the centuries and how it's part of a much, much older agenda that dates back millennia and involves the epistemic autocracy of empiricism which will, in the eyes of the ruling elite, lead to the apotheosis of man, man becoming God, capital M, and it being a type of collective man that's meant in that sense. Um, a very, very fascinating little piece of that puzzle that, that feeds into the greater agenda. We also looked at how that is specifically taking place, even in our own current time, in our own day and age, as our conscious thoughts and our habits are being manipulated to guide us into this type of technocratic system where everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that it's possible for us to perceive about the world around us is being shaped by the opinion makers. And again, this is part of a coordinated agenda. So we did outline all of that history, or at least substantial bits of that history, in last week's episode of the podcast. And we left it at the point where, well, the logical, the next point for our investigation, how do we combat this? What is the way that we can resist what we see going on once we've defined the problem? So we're going to be picking up from that point, but I would like to take a look at an article that actually popped up in the past week. 
that I think does a great job of recapping exactly what it is that we were looking at and worrying about in last week's episode. So we're going to turn to an article by Professor James F. Tracy that originally appeared on his blog at memorygap.org, but we'll be taking it from globalresearch.ca, where it was reposted earlier this week and where I first saw this article. And it does a great job of outlining some of this history and what it really means. So let's just take a look at this article. It says, quote, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is directing $1.1 million to fit students in seven U.S. public school districts with galvanic skin response bracelets. The devices are designed to measure students' receptivity to teachers' lessons through biometric technology that reads and records skin conductance, a form of electrodermal activity that grows higher during states such as boredom or relaxation. The funding is part of the Gates Foundation's $49.5 million Measures of Effective Teachers project that is presently experimenting with teacher evaluation systems. As Melinda Gates put it on the PBS NewsHour, what the foundation feels our job is to do is to make sure we create a system where we can have an effective teacher in every single classroom across the United States. The effort of extraordinarily wealthy elites to further subvert educational practices through neuromarketing techniques is the latest example in a long sequence of educational reforms dating to the early 1900s. Indeed, the Gates Foundation's fixation on stimulus response measurement and data collection is a fitting chapter of this history. State-sanctioned education in the United States has become a type of task-oriented training, quite apart from what education once involved, the cultivation of the human will and intellect. Children in most public schools today receive this type of conditioning, while the more affluent often send their offspring to private institutions or homeschool. What passes for education today is, to a significant degree, the legacy of late 19th to early 20th century German psychologist Wilhelm Wundt and the Rockefeller family's philanthropic project. A professor at University of Leipzig, Wundt was the originator of what, we, what he termed a new or experimental psychology that stripped psychology of any of its potential philosophical concerns with the soul, will, or self-determination of the individual. In Wundt's reconfiguration of psychology, the mind is merely an apparatus that responds to given stimuli, and through the measurement and recording of the stimuli and responses of the subject, the psychologist in the laboratory, subsequently the teacher and now the students in the classroom, can determine the effectiveness of one stimulus response method over another, as well as the functional capacities of the student. For Wundt and his followers, the human being is the sum total of her experiences, devoid of character and essence that might interfere with the ends of the collective unit. This view of the human psyche set the stage for the establishment of eugenics, psychiatry, and the social engineering carried out in public school classrooms. Wundt exerted tremendous influence through his American doctoral students who studied at Leipzig and returned to transform U.S. education. One of the most influential of these adherents was G. Stanley Hall, who after studying at Leipzig came back to the U.S. in 1883 to teach at Johns Hopkins, begin the American Journal of Psychology, and mentor American intellectual and educational icon John Dewey. Others include James McKean Cattell, who returned in 1887 and took a faculty position in psychology at Columbia in 1891, where he minted 344 doctoral students. James Earl Russell, author of Wundt's Studies, became director of Columbia's Teachers College in 1897 and remained in the position until the late 1920s. For the next 30 years, Cattell, Russell, and Dewey, who ended a 10-year stint at University of Chicago and joined his fellow Wundtians in 1904, played substantial roles in transforming public education along the lines that would firmly establish Wundt's ideas and approaches in American public education. At the same time, Columbia Teachers College became the largest teacher training institution in the world. By the early 1950s, roughly one-third of all deans and presidents of accredited teaching schools in the U.S. were graduates of the Columbia program. While Wundt's apostles were well-positioned to wreak havoc on U.S. education, their mission was greatly aided through funding from the Rockefeller Foundation. John D. Rockefeller saw education as a rewarding object of patronage, pointing to the $45 million that he used to establish the University of Chicago in 1890 as the investment that fused the Rockefeller name with liberal philanthropy. He and his handlers, which included his son John D. Rockefeller Jr. and Fe Frederick Taylor Gates, no relation to Bill Gates, 
concluded that education paid off especially well in terms of burnishing the family's image. As John Jr. became more involved in the family's philanthropic efforts, he devised new avenues for Rockefeller money, founding the General Education Board, what became known informally as Rockefeller's Education Trust. The board channeled especially sizable funds into reshaping elementary education in the American South through the application of Wundtian experimental psychology approaches. Most professional educators at the college or university level regularly encounter the legacy of Wundtian psychology and the Rockefellers' uneducational undertakings. Students often exhibit an inability to think logically and independently, either aloud or in writing, because formative educational experiences, combined with the lifelong instruction of mass media, recognize and address the individual not as a full human being capable of profound acknowledgement and understanding, but rather as a sensory apparatus upon which stimuli is targeted and a response prompted and measured, i.e. the correct answer or product purchase. Thus, the common responses when the student is asked to reflect on and discuss course content are unsurprising. What do you want? How much should we write? Will this be on the exam? In such an educational and cultural environment where the recognition and cultivation of individual will is discouraged and the deferral to expert opinion is all but obligatory, the result is a combination of skepticism and cynicism. Eric Fromm recognized this phenomenon in the 1940s by pointing out how the perception among individuals that only trained experts could address complex problems, and then only in their own specific specializations, discourages people from using their own minds to seriously think about and address concerns facing themselves or society as a whole. The result of this kind of influence is a twofold one, Fromm wrote in 1941. One is a skepticism and cynicism toward everything which is said or printed, while the other is a childish belief in anything that a person is told with authority. This combination of cynicism and naivete is very typical of the modern individual. Its essential result is to discourage him from doing his own thinking and deciding. This very type of apathetic malaise acts to short-circuit political engagement as much as to lessen the exercise of simple common sense in everyday decisions. On cable and broadcast television, for example, where most Americans still rely on heavily to form a view of the world, one will encounter an endless sequence of experts wheeled before the camera to provide an opinion for the viewer. The technocratic application of neuromarketing to what passes for education today is a fitting outcome in a society that has become almost completely controlled by a scientific elite. As was the case 100 years ago, this technocracy is funded and directed by the super wealthy and trained to refine and implement what they see as most efficient practices for sculpting and managing the collective mind. This self-selected class and its overseers also recognize how such a brave new world operates at optimal efficiency when the bulk of the population has been effectively zombified through stultifying stimulus-response rituals, a process that after many generations has come close to complete fruition. Once again, that is James F. Tracy in a very, very good summary, I think, of episode 230 of this podcast. And that goes under the headline, The the Technocratization of Public Education. Once again, available from memorygap.org and available via globalresearch.ca. So I trust that the broad outline of the problem is fully remembered from last week and that we do understand that there is a guiding force and in fact a demonstrable uh, wealthy elite that has been guiding this ideology for the last century and really making of the, the children, for example, in the education system, but also of adults, fully grown adults, into nothing more than stimulus response mechanisms that can be adjusted for whatever conditions of society the wealthy ruling elite would like to adjust them for. So that, for example, during the Industrial Revolution, we could process uh, great workers out of the education system so they could be uh, highly attuned to the rhythm of the factory. During the information age, that would be a different form of conditioning altogether. But the point is always to fine-tune the individual that results from the end of this academic process to whatever conditions of society the wealthy ruling elite would like to condition them to. And as we looked at in the end of last week's episode, it is getting more and more finely detailed so that, for example... 
This can be applied to pretty much every aspect of our daily lives, even down to the point where Target, the store, can actually know that you are pregnant sometimes even before you do because of uh, monitoring your shopping habits, etc. And then, of course, it's a process of molding those habits so that they can produce the type of person they want to produce. So we are once again left at the ending of last week's episode. What do we do about this? Well, since so much has been invested in the education system to try to control the minds, control the consciousness, manipulate the habits and the opinions of the masses, clearly we have to start at that level by challenging the types of manipulations and control that we've been subjected to. And the only way to do that, I think, is to adequately identify the ruling elite, reject their ideology, and propose our own. And that is what I mean when I talk about the revolution of the mind. This is a phrase that perhaps a few of you have encountered from me before in the past. For example, when Claire Swinney interviewed me back around the time of episode 100 of this podcast in 2009, she did an interview in which I stressed that the revolution of the mind is the only one that matters. And I understand and agree that that is only a pithy catchphrase if it is left vaguely undefined and nebulous like that. So let's do the hard work of fleshing that out. What is the revolution of the mind? How do we achieve it? And what kind of effect can it be expected to have? So let's let's turn to some, some pontifications about how this type of system really functions. Because once again, the more that we know about how this functions and who is behind it and how they maintain power the more we can effectively strike back against it. And in order to do that, we're going to turn to an old, long familiar source, George Orwell's 1984. And I do feel the need of uh, defending myself in the choice of this clip, because of course I would imagine that most of my listeners are quite well familiar with 1984 by now, if not from previous episodes of this very podcast, like episode 114, New Speak is Double Plus Ungood, then from the endless references back to this work that we get seemingly with increasing frequency in this day and age of the Orwellian Big Brother Nightmare Society. But once again, it is important to understand that George Orwell was not just anyone. He certainly was, uh, well, his real name was Eric Blair, and he did come from a wealthy, privileged family, a country gentleman's uh, family, uh, slave owners, and uh, that uh, that Eric Blair did leave, lead something of a, a charmed life, having some really incredible experiences for example, in Burma and then in uh, in London, directing propaganda for the BBC during World War II. So he certainly did have an insider's view of what was happening. And just to demonstrate that once again, I'd like to, uh, to make everyone cast their mind back to something that we took a look at back in last week's episode, which was some quotations from... Uh, Lord Bertrand Russell's 1951 book, The Impact of Science on Society. And we quoted him specifically on this intriguing passage. The social psychologists of the future will have a number of classes of schoolchildren on whom they will try different methods of producing an unshakable conviction that snow is black. It is for future scientists to make these maxims precise and discover exactly how much it costs per head to make children believe that snow is black and how much less it would cost to make them believe it is dark gray. Well, that is an interesting and intriguing passage that we were marked on in last week's episode. And, well, lo and behold, did, did anyone remember that uh, something somewhat along those lines from 1984? Oceanic society rests ultimately on the belief that Big Brother is omnipotent and that the party is infallible. But since in reality Big Brother is not omnipotent and the party is not infallible, there is a need for an unwearying moment-to-moment flexibility in the treatment of facts. The key word here is black-white. Like so many Newspeak words, this word has two mutually contradictory meanings. Applied to an opponent, it means the habit of impudently claiming that black is white, in contradiction of the plain facts. Applied to a party member, it means a loyal willingness to say that black is white when party discipline demands this. But it means also the ability to believe that black is white, and more, to know that black is white, and to forget that one has ever believed the contrary. This demands a continuous alteration of the past, made possible by the system of thought which really embraces all the rest, and which is known in Newspeak as doublethink. Hmm, black-white, and that comes from 1948, when Orwell published 1984, 
as opposed to uh, Lord Bertrand Russell writing in 1951, talking about how the scientists of the future will have to make students believe that black is white. Uh, an extremely interesting parallel, and perhaps that shows that they were working in the same milieu and thinking very much along the same lines. And Eric Blair slash George Orwell certainly was part of that inside group for at least part of his life and did really blow the whistle in so many ways with 1984 and with many of his other works besides. So we will once again return to 1984 for a very, very important passage outlining specifically how the technocratic elite or the would-be elite or the would-be rulers of the future technocratic society or the present technocratic society, if you will, how they maintain and perpetuate their power, which is an extremely, extremely important thing to understand if we want to subvert that power and if we want to take the power back into the hands of the individual against the collective. So that previous clip and the one we are about to listen to both come from Chapter 9 of 1984, in which uh, Winston is reading Emmanuel Goldstein's book, The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. Extremely interesting, isn't it, that that's what Goldstein's book is about and is fighting against the oligarchical collectivism that is the Big Brother police state and that very much is demonstrably what we are being prepared and conditioned for under this neo-humanist utopia where we will all be, well, basically wired into the Borg collective consciousness if the neo-humanist, transcendentalist, transhuman uh, elitists have their way. So let's listen to a passage from Emmanuel Goldstein's treatise talking about how the ruling, would-be ruling class maintains its power and perpetuates the Big Brother state. There are only four ways in which a ruling group can fall from power. Either it is conquered from without, or it governs so inefficiently that the masses are stirred to revolt, or it allows a strong and discontented middle group to come into being, or it loses its own self-confidence and willingness to govern. These causes do not operate singly, and as a rule all four of them are present in some degree. A ruling class which could guard against all of them would remain in power permanently. Ultimately, the determining factor is the mental attitude of the ruling class itself. After the middle of the present century, the first danger had in reality disappeared. Each of the three powers which now divide the world is, in fact, unconquerable and could only become conquerable through slow demographic changes which a government with wide powers can easily avert. The second danger also is only a theoretical one. The masses never revolt of their own accord, and they never revolt merely because they are oppressed. Indeed, so long as they are not permitted to have standards of comparison, they never even become aware that they are oppressed. The recurrent economic crises of past times were totally unnecessary and are not now permitted to happen. But other and equally large dislocations can and do happen without having political results, because there is no way in which discontent can become articulate. As for the problem of overproduction, which has been latent in our society since the development of machine technique, it is solved by the device of continuous warfare, see Chapter 3, which is also useful in keying up public morale to the necessary pitch. From the point of view of our present rulers, therefore, the only genuine dangers are the splitting off of a new group of able, underemployed, power-hungry people, and the growth of liberalism and skepticism in their own ranks. The problem, that is to say, is educational. It is a problem of continuously molding the consciousness both of the directing group and of the larger executive group that lies immediately below it. The consciousness of the masses needs only to be influenced in a negative way. Given this background, one could infer, if one did not know it already, the general structure of oceanic society. At the apex of the pyramid comes Big Brother. Big Brother is infallible and all-powerful. Every success, every achievement, every victory, every scientific discovery, all knowledge, all wisdom, all happiness, all virtue, are held to issue directly from his leadership and inspiration. Nobody has ever seen Big Brother. He is a face on the hoardings, a voice on the telescreen. We may be reasonably sure that he will never die, and there is already considerable uncertainty as to when he was born. Big Brother is the guise in which the party chooses to exhibit itself to the world. His function is to act as a focusing point for love, fear, and reverence, emotions which are more easily felt toward an individual than toward an organization. Below Big Brother comes the inner party, 
its numbers limited to six millions, or something less than two percent of the population of Oceania. Below the inner party comes the outer party, which, if the inner party is described as the brain of the state, may be justly likened to the hands. Below that come the dumb masses whom we habitually refer to as the proles, numbering perhaps eighty-five percent of the population. In the terms of our earlier classification, the proles are the low, for the slave populations of the equatorial lands who pass constantly from conqueror to conqueror are not a permanent or necessary part of the structure. In principle, membership in these three groups is not hereditary. The child of inner-party parents is in theory not born into the inner party. Admission to either branch of the party is by examination, taken at the age of sixteen. Nor is there any racial discrimination or any marked domination of one province by another. Jews, Negroes, South Americans of pure Indian blood are to be found in the highest ranks of the party, and the administrators of any area are always drawn from the inhabitants of that area. In no part of Oceania do the inhabitants have the feeling that they are a colonial population ruled from a distant capital. Oceania has no capital, and its titular head is a person whose whereabouts nobody knows. Except that English is its chief lingua franca and newspeak its official language, it is not centralized in any way. Its rulers are not held together by blood ties, but by adherence to a common doctrine. It is true that our society is stratified, and very rigidly stratified, on what at first sight appear to be hereditary lines. There is far less to and fro movement between the different groups than happened under capitalism, or even in the pre-industrial ages. Between the two branches of the party there is a certain amount of interchange, but only so much as will ensure that weaklings are excluded from the inner party, and that ambitious members of the outer party are made harmless by allowing them to rise. Proletarians, in practice, are not allowed to graduate into the party. The most gifted among them, who might possibly become nuclei of discontent, are simply marked down by the thought police and eliminated. But this state of affairs is not necessarily permanent, nor is it a matter of principle. The party is not a class in the old sense of the word. It does not aim at transmitting power to its own children as such. And if there were no other way of keeping the ablest people at the top, it would be perfectly prepared to recruit an entire new generation from the ranks of the proletariat. In the crucial years, the fact that the party was not a hereditary body did a great deal to neutralize opposition. The older kind of socialist who had been trained to fight against something called class privilege assumed that what is not hereditary cannot be permanent. He did not see that the continuity of an oligarchy need not be physical, nor did he pause to reflect that hereditary aristocracies have always been short-lived, whereas adoptive organizations, such as the Catholic Church, have sometimes lasted for hundreds or thousands of years. The essence of oligarchical rule is not father-to-son inheritance, but the persistence of a certain world view and a certain way of life, imposed by the dead upon the living. A ruling group is a ruling group so long as it can nominate its successors. The party is not concerned with perpetuating its blood, but with perpetuating itself. Who wields power is not important, provided that the hierarchical structure remains always the same. All the beliefs, habits, tastes, emotions, mental attitudes that characterize our time are really designed to sustain the mystique of the party and prevent the true nature of present-day society from being perceived. Physical rebellion, or any preliminary move toward rebellion, is at present not possible. From the proletarians nothing is to be feared. Left to themselves, they will continue from generation to generation and from century to century, working, breeding, and dying, not only without any impulse to rebel, but without the power of grasping that the world could be other than it is. They could only become dangerous if the advance of industrial technique made it necessary to educate them more highly. But since military and commercial rivalry are no longer important, the level of popular education is actually declining. What opinions the masses hold or do not hold is looked on as a matter of indifference. They can be granted intellectual liberty because they have no intellect. In a party member, on the other hand, not even the smallest deviation of opinion on the most unimportant subject can be tolerated. A party member lives from birth to death under the eye of the thought police. Even when he is alone, he can never be sure that he is alone. Wherever he may be, asleep or awake, working or resting, in his bath or in bed, he can be inspected without warning and without knowing that he is being inspected. 
Nothing that he does is indifferent. His friendships, his relaxations, his behaviour towards his wife and children, the expression of his face when he is alone, the words he mutters in sleep, even the characteristic movements of his body are all jealously scrutinised. Not only any actual misdemeanour, but any eccentricity, however small, any change of habits, any nervous mannerism that could possibly be the symptom of an inner struggle is certain to be detected. He has no freedom of choice in any direction whatever. On the other hand, his actions are not regulated by law or by any clearly formulated code of behaviour. In Oceania there is no law. Thoughts and actions which, when detected, mean certain death are not formally forbidden and the endless purges, arrests, tortures, imprisonments, and vaporizations are not inflicted as punishment for crimes which have actually been committed, but are merely the wiping out of persons who might perhaps commit a crime at some time in the future. A party member is required to have not only the right opinions, but the right instincts. Many of the beliefs and attitudes demanded of him are never plainly stated, and could not be stated without laying bare the contradictions inherent in Ingsoc. If he is a person naturally orthodox, in Newspeak a good thinker, he will in all circumstances know, without taking thought, what is the true belief or the desirable emotion. But in any case, an elaborate mental training, undergone in childhood and grouping itself round the Newspeak words Crime Stop, Black White, and Double Think, makes him unwilling and unable to think too deeply on any subject whatever. Well, an absolutely breathtaking, staggering excerpt from 1984 there, and of course it is surrounded by much, much more interesting text besides, so I will exhort you to go to the documentation episode of today's episode on CorbettReport.com and to follow the link to the text itself. I've included a link to the, uh, to the complete uh, text of 1984, especially that section of Emmanuel Goldstein's writings where uh, he is laying out exactly how this type of hierarchy is perpetuated. And I trust that many of the parallels with our own situation will be glaringly apparent in terms of the type of ruling elite or would-be elite that exists in our society, how it is not structured along class or hereditary lines necessarily, but is certainly structured in a way that the ruling elite get to pick the next crop of ruling elite exactly as we see taking place, for example, at the Bilderberg each year, as the uh, torch is passed from aging octogenarians or nonagenarians like uh, David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger and the like to the next round of people who can be trusted with uh, perpetuating what ultimately goes back at least as far as Cecil Rhodes' roundtable, etc., but uh, once again, it is just staggering how many ways uh, that all of that parallels what is actually and demonstrably taking place in our current day and age. And once again, I think speaks to the fact that George Orwell, a.k.a. Eric Blair, certainly did have insider knowledge of what was taking place and where things were headed. And uh, one thing that I would like to specifically pick up on, because I think it is specifically important for the theme of today's episode, is to note that the habits and opinions and the thoughts and the, the actions of the, the masses, the proletariat, were in fact very inconsequential to the, to the structure and the perpetuation of the system of hierarchy. In fact, they didn't really care what the masses thought because it was of so little consequence that it could be seen to not matter. And uh, and I think that's also demonstrable in our day and age where it is very true that a vast majority of the population basically takes themselves out of the, the realm of, of thinking conscious actors in this war for consciousness, which we are identifying by simply abdicating all of their responsibilities and refusing to, to think about any of these subjects and instead well, amusing themselves with endless diversions that have absolutely no consequence whatsoever. Oh, hold like on this. a minute. You're calling me a I am. You stuck-up, precious little bitch. Let me tell you oh something. Oh, boy. Here we go. Listen to me. Yes, so far today. Absolute yes. Yes, 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 honey. Julie, you have four yeses. Oh my God. Congratulations. 
And in contrast to those who are endlessly fascinated by such tawdry material, there are the people who I guess we could identify as the party members of our current day and age who are at least people who are thinking and conscious and involved in some way in the system, or at the very least participating in the system. And the system itself remains something that itself is very, very nebulously defined and operates largely behind the scenes in such a way that those who are serving its interests generally don't even understand it in the exact same way that Orwell was laying out in that earlier passage. So we can think, for example, of the teachers who were involved in the day-to-day process of implementing these educational institutions that are dreamt up by the the Vuntians and the Rockefellers and all of those that were identified in that earlier article in today's podcast. These teachers are doing this on a day-to-day basis, but they may have absolutely no idea, and in fact, generally, probably don't have any idea about the philosophical background and the historical background of what they're doing, or the ideas of how this was funded into existence by certain families for the betterment of their own self-interest. I think that's something that we can understand. Many teachers have no idea how they slot into this much, much bigger uh, understanding of what's really happening in this whole system and the indoctrination that is taking place through them and to the children. And once again, this is not necessarily to condemn those teachers. It's to say that they themselves have been fed into this system and they are the cogs that make one small part of that system function. And it is a fascinating thing to behold and, of course, something that we must do our best to confront and to shake people, not, of course, simply teachers, but people like that in those positions in society who are involved with shaping the conscious habits and opinions of the masses, Well, we have to find a way of reaching those people who can have that effect, who can take this up, who can be shown that the the system that they are serving has these internal contradictions exactly as the Big Brother police state that Orwell was writing about had, and that once we actually start to examine it, we can once again realize that self self-agency, the will, individualism, are the types of things that we want to foster once again in our society so that we can overcome this collective oligarchical decision-making, which inevitably leads us towards these neo-humanist and transhumanist shapings of our future and the guiding of us into the, as we sleepwalk into this transhumanist nightmare that they're laying out for us. So this is what really it comes down to when we talk about the revolution of the mind. It means shaking people out of the status quo, getting them to question what it is they're doing it, how they're doing it, where these processes for doing it came from, and really making them start to become conscious agents once again. And perhaps another analogy that we can turn to in the realm of literature and film and fiction And one, again, that is perhaps overused, but nonetheless effective for that, is the Matrix and the idea of shaking people out of the Matrix and jacking them out so that they can understand that this is the world that they think they are living in is really nothing like the world that is in fact shaping up around them. And if we can do that, and I believe we can, otherwise I obviously would not be here talking to you right now, If we can do that, if we can affect that revolution of the mind in a significant enough percentage of the population, I think the necessary fallout from that will be the destabilization of this agenda, this agenda towards collectivization, the agenda towards oligarchical control, and the agenda that will ultimately lead to this uploading of our consciousness in these silicon chips and all of the other nonsense that the transhumanists think are going to lead to some utopian paradise. Well, it may be some something resembling a utopian paradise from the perspective of the people who are funding it into existence, but I guarantee you for the rest of humanity, it will mean subsistence servitude at best and perhaps outright elimination from the planet at worst. So once again, this is a game for all the marbles and the revolution of the mind is so important. The only revolution that we can really and truly affect in this day and age where so much incredible technology is being invented right now to combat people in a physical sense to institute the most incredible instantiation of Orwell's nightmare vision of the future, the boot on the face, stamping on the human face for the rest of eternity. Well, now that all of that technology, the LRADs and the sound cannons and the microwave guns and all of this, uh, the drone technology, that means that we can be spied on, surveilled and contained and dealt with in any manner that that uh, the, the ruling would-be elite see fit, 
now that that type of technology is in place, the idea of a physical revolution, some sort of gun f- war shooting people in the head is as a way of affecting change in this world, I think is absolutely counterproductive. I think the only thing we can do is shake people out of the matrix and get them to stop going along with this system. That is what is meant by the revolution of the mind. So how do we affect that? Well, that, my friends, is the trillion-dollar question. So let's start examining that question, because again, I don't think it's as evident as it would appear at first blush. We might be tempted to believe that, as with uh, so many other facets of our life, well, if we can just lay out some facts, if we can just establish some of these things for people, if we can just show them, for example, oh, the Rockefellers funded this Wundtian philosophy into existence in, in this educational system that and we can show them, for example, Lord Bertrand Russell writing about the impact of science and society, and we can tie that into the greater agenda, etc. If we can just lay these facts on the table, people will inevitably understand what's going on and react against it. Well, unfortunately, not so. Not so at all, as we have unfortunately been demonstrated, has been demonstrated over the years. People are fundamentally not rational creatures. They can, are capable of rationality, but at base they are driven by instinct. They are driven by forces that are unseen, unconscious, and really do drive people at an emotional level. And unfortunately, just laying out facts is not going to get people to suddenly change their entire worldview. There has to be a tipping point or a breaking point. Now, this is a point that was made in, well, I think, great force in the 1960s by a philosopher of science known as Thomas Kuhn. And Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which one might say was a paradigm shift in thinking about the way that scientific revolutions take place. And I think more broadly in the sense of how any revolution, true revolution in the sense of something that truly creates something different, and not revolution in the actual literal sense of revolving back to the same spot, but a true uh, breakthrough in understanding doesn't come through the simple piling up of data. It comes when an entire worldview shift happens and people snap from one way of thinking about the world into another. And unfortunately, we are being led along the path of collectivism and oligarchy by the collectivists and the oligarchs who believe that this will be the ultimate system for them. And unfortunately, we can be steeped into that system little by little, our habits, our thoughts, our opinions being gradually shaped in the manner in which we outlined in last week's episode. So we have to stop people from going along with the status quo because we know where that is leading. But how do we snap them out of that? How do we affect a paradigm shift? Well, let's take a listen to a little bit of the structure of scientific revolutions. There is an audio and slash video file available, which I'll link to in the show notes for today's episode. Let's listen to some of Thomas Kuhn talking about this paradigm shift concept and what it really means. As the title of his book indicates, Kuhn was especially interested in scientific revolutions, periods of great upheaval when existing scientific ideas are replaced with radically new ones. Examples of scientific revolutions are the Copernican revolution in astronomy, the Einsteinian revolution in physics, and the Darwinian revolution in biology. Each of these revolutions led to a fundamental change in the scientific worldview, the overthrow of an existing set of ideas by a completely different set. Of course, Scientific revolutions happen relatively infrequently. Most of the time, any given science is not in a state of revolution. Kuhn coined the term normal science to describe the ordinary day-to-day activities that scientists engage in when their discipline is not undergoing revolutionary change. Central to Kuhn's account of normal science is the concept of a paradigm. A paradigm consists of two main components. Firstly, a set of fundamental theoretical assumptions that all members of a scientific community accept at a given time. Secondly, a set of exemplars, or particular scientific problems that have been solved by means of those theoretical assumptions and that appear in the textbooks of the discipline in question. But a paradigm is more than just a theory, though Kuhn sometimes uses the words interchangeably. When scientists share a paradigm, they do not just agree on certain scientific propositions. They agree also on how future scientific research in their field should proceed, 
on which problems are the pertinent ones to tackle, on what the appropriate methods for solving those problems are, on what an acceptable solution of the problems would look like, and so on. In short, a paradigm is an entire scientific outlook, a constellation of shared assumptions, beliefs, and values that unite a scientific community and allow normal science to take place. What exactly does normal science involve? According to Kuhn, it is primarily a matter of puzzle-solving. However successful a paradigm is, it will always encounter certain problems, phenomena that it cannot easily accommodate, mismatches between the theory's predictions and the experimental facts, and so on. The job of the normal scientist is to try to eliminate these minor puzzles while making as few changes as possible to the paradigm. So, normal science is a highly conservative activity. Its practitioners are not trying to make any earth-shattering discoveries, but rather just to develop and extend the existing paradigm. In Kuhn's words, normal science does not aim at novelties of fact or theory, and when successful, finds none. Above all, Kuhn stressed that normal scientists are not trying to test the paradigm. On the contrary, they accept the paradigm unquestioningly and conduct their research within the limits it sets. If a normal scientist gets an experimental result that conflicts with the paradigm, she will usually assume that her experimental technique is faulty, not that the paradigm is wrong. The paradigm itself is not negotiable. Typically, a period of normal science lasts many decades, sometimes even centuries. During this time, scientists gradually articulate the paradigm, fine-tuning it, filling in details, solving more and more puzzles, extending its range of application, and so on. But over time, anomalies are discovered, phenomena that simply cannot be reconciled with the theoretical assumptions of the paradigm, however hard normal scientists try. When anomalies are few in number, they tend to just get ignored. But as more and more anomalies accumulate, a burgeoning sense of crisis envelops the scientific community. Confidence in the existing paradigm breaks down, and the process of normal science temporarily grinds to a halt. This marks the beginning of a period of revolutionary science, as Kuhn calls it. During such periods, fundamental scientific ideas are up for grabs. A variety of alternatives to the old paradigm are proposed, and eventually a new paradigm becomes established. A generation or so is usually required before all members of the scientific community are won over to the new paradigm, an event that marks the completion of a scientific revolution. The essence of a scientific revolution is thus the shift from an old paradigm to a new one. Kuhn's characterization of the history of science as long periods of normal science punctuated by occasional scientific revolutions struck a chord with many philosophers and historians of science. A number of examples from the history of science fit Kuhn's model quite well. When we examine the transition from Ptolemaic to Copernican astronomy, for example, or from Newtonian to Einsteinian physics, many of the features that Kuhn describes are present. Ptolemaic astronomers did indeed share a paradigm based around the theory that the Earth is stationary at the center of the universe, which formed the unquestioned backdrop to their investigations. The same is true of Newtonian physicists in the 18th and 19th centuries, whose paradigm was based around Newton's theory of mechanics and gravitation. And in both cases, Kuhn's account of how an old paradigm gets replaced by a new one applies fairly accurately. There are also scientific revolutions that do not fit the Kuhnian model so neatly. For example, the recent molecular revolution in biology. But, nonetheless, most people agree that Kuhn's description of the history of science contains much of value. Why did Kuhn's ideas cause such a storm? Because, in addition to his purely descriptive claims about the history of science, 
Kuhn advanced some highly controversial philosophical theses. Ordinarily, we assume that when scientists trade their existing theory for a new one, they do so on the basis of objective evidence. But Kuhn argued that adopting a new paradigm involves a certain act of faith on the part of the scientist. He allowed that a scientist could have good reasons for abandoning an old paradigm for a new one, but he insisted that reasons alone could never rationally compel a paradigm shift. The transfer of allegiance from paradigm to paradigm, Kuhn wrote, is a conversion experience which cannot be forced. And in explaining why a new paradigm rapidly gains acceptance in the scientific community, Kuhn emphasized the peer pressure of scientists on one another. If a given paradigm has very forceful advocates, it is more likely to win widespread acceptance. Now, admittedly, Kuhn was writing specifically in the scientific context about scientific revolutions, but I don't think it takes a great leap of imagination to see how this could apply in other fields of study or even fields of thought, so that we could, for example, try to suss out the paradigm in the socio-political cultural context and see if it applies in that case as well. And I think there's a very good argument that it's the exact same type of paradigmatic shifts that really account for true revolutions in human understanding, regardless of whatever field that might come in. So, for example, we could go back a few thousand years in time and try to explain to someone who's toiling in slave labor in service of the Egyptian pharaohs that uh, that they are individual humans with equal rights to those pharaohs and that they there's no such, such thing as the, the, the pharaoh's divine right to rule. He's not not actually the instantiation of the sun god, etc., etc. But one wonders how much the person that we'd be talking to would even be able to comprehend that, because they would be so fully in that paradigm of simply being a slave that it would be difficult for them to comprehend any other form of life. Similarly, we could go back to the Middle Ages and try to make the same types of arguments or try to explain a capitalist society or, or something of that sort, but it would be like talking another language even if we were talking in the same language because, again, a lot of the concepts are so f firmly embedded in the language that we wouldn't really be able to even explain a lot of these ideas that have been articulated painstakingly over centuries by some of the types of philosophers and writers that we've looked at in this podcast in the past, specifically in the uh, philo uh, Philosophy of Freedom series. So we can think, I think, very definitely of these types of political and social uh, revolutions in substantially the same manner that Kuhn wrote about the scientific revolutions. And that brings us to an interesting point, because I hope that you uh, picked up on the towards the end of that clip how it was talking about how scientific revolutions don't necessarily occur simply because a certain number of facts have accrued to show that there's something wrong with the paradigm. There's also an element of peer pressure and culture and society going into those types of decisions that scientists make, really, to either explore the areas of contradiction and come to a new understanding, a new paradigm, or to back off from that. And it's kind of interesting for us. Even today, I think we still have generally speaking, from cultural osmosis, this idea of scientists as somehow above politics and above all of this socio-cultural context. Well, scientists are just scientists. They only go with the facts. But, of course, we have been examining in the past the climate change uh, community, etc., and how they are very much influenced by the socio-political, cultural, economic context that they're situated in, so that any scientist in our day and age, for example, who is working for some institution that is funded by taxpayer money and who is living on a precarious knife edge at all times between getting grants and funding to continue the research or getting that taken away, will have a vested interest in going along with whatever the prevailing paradigm at the time is because they're more likely to get by with that. If they challenge the paradigm, they might get ostracized from the scientific community and worse yet, get ostracized or even expelled from their, their university. So, for example, we saw uh, academics who were researching 9-11 truth-type issues in the middle of the last decade getting uh, taken out of their teaching positions and booted out of their universities for daring to question the status quo. Well, that's exactly why so many scientists are afraid to question the, the status quo and work in the paradigm of normal science that Kuhn was writing about. 
And that's why in the exact similar way, so few people are willing to speak out about controversial political, social, cultural, economic issues in mixed company, why we're told never to talk about uh, government and politics uh, in mixed company, because there is that same prevailing orthodoxy which overshadows all conversations within any given sociocultural context, so that there's always that shadow of big brother hanging over our shoulders when we're talking, even if we're not aware of it. It's almost like the concept of the panopticon, except it's even more insidious. It's not necessarily something that's watching you. It is just the prevailing zeitgeist, the paradigm, the, the, the shared cultural understanding, so that if you try to talk about false flag terrorism to someone who's never even heard of the concept, it would be a very, very bizarre thing for them to hear to the point where they may not even understand what you're trying to say, let alone take the time to try to understand it, let alone listen to any of the facts that back it up. So we are dealing with this type of cross-paradigmatic dialogue when we're talking to people who are so thoroughly ensconced in the system that they're unwilling to question the, their own fundamental underlying assumptions. So what are the assumptions that make up the paradigm of our current political context, or at least the one that's been received through the general culture? Well, broadly speaking, even disregarding the the left and right schism that uh, that functions in this two party two party two headed hydra that is modern american politics and of course the politics of most other modern western democracies even leaving that aside some of the shared understandings are that for example governments are uh, at best actually working in our best interest and at worst merely inept and incompetent and therefore unable to really pull anything off uh, for for the betterment of humanity but the idea that governments are actually working or are tools that can be used to work against the best interests of the citizens is seen as conspiracy theory. Or the idea that there are groups of people with almost unimaginable amounts of wealth who use that wealth and power uh, to leverage power over people and to uh, conspire with other people who are also similarly wealthy to maintain that grip on power. That again is seen as outside the bounds of common discourse. That's outside the paradigm we're living in. Thus, that's crazy conspiracy theory, etc., etc. I think we can see that basically every time someone tries to marginalize something as conspiracy theory, that's because that is outside the paradigm that they're working in. So this becomes the really the crux of the issue. If we're going to affect this revolution of the mind, getting people out of that status quo, going along with the system to get along with the system type mentality that enables and furthers along this agenda of dumbing us down and keeping us all in this box and making us go along this path towards this inevitable outcome or what seems to be the inevitable outcome of the big brother future society that we see coming down the road. If we want to get out of that, if we want to affect the revolution, how do we get people out of that paradigm? Well, once again, there's no simple piling on of facts that will ever do that, as that, as Kuhn made clear, and as that clip also, I think, demonstrated. The scientific revolutions only occur when there is the prevailing social and cultural net, as it were, to catch the scientists who are willing to take that plunge and to go out uh, outside of the field, uh, the, the boundaries of whatever paradigm they're working in. In the same way in the socio-political cultural context, there has to be at least enough people, enough social validation for a, uh, a conspiracy theory, quote-unquote, in order to make it popular, quote-unquote, enough for people to go out on the limb and to do and to go into that area of, of research or to, to head into that area of conversation. So in our context, for example, you and I, and I, I presume everyone listening to this podcast would be interested in broaching things like 9-11 truth or, or talking about uh, the, the, the way the economy is really structured, what money really is, how it's really created, how it's distributed, etc., etc. in our society. Well, these are extremely important topics and ones that I'm sure you, like probably everyone else who is really really tried to dig into this, has had problems broaching with various people in the past, people who will immediately shut the conversation down, people who will dismiss or ridicule you for talking about it, people who have extremely different views uh, and who don't want to hear anything about how government could ever be anything but but a loving, wonderful institution for the betterment of humanity, etc., etc. I'm sure we can all imagine those types of situations if we have not yet uh, undergone them ourselves, which 
If you're anything like me, you probably have. So, so the real question then is, well, how do we how do we go about broaching these conversations and make it so that there is that social validation that people feel that they can go out and branch into those areas and start exploring them and start thinking about their their own individual interests instead of the group conformity that is normal science and also I would say normal conversation in our current paradigm. Well, again, it's important to understand that just as peer pressure can be a, a perhaps not particularly obvious, but still very present factor in scientists, for example, working within a given paradigm, so that can be a deciding and decisive factor for the vast majority of the people out there who may be interested in these kinds of conversations and receptive to them, but they need social validation for that. So we provide a social safety net for them. We provide the evidence that there is the social capital to be spent in the arena of this paradigm of research. And perhaps that's extending the analogy a little bit too much. But I hope you get the point. The point is that underlying all of this is people's are people's fundamental insecurities about even talking about these types of subjects, going into these types of areas, questioning the prevailing orthodoxy, the paradigm of the cultural zeitgeist. But from my own perspective, as someone who's been doing this now for five years and who has been watching the alternative media now quite closely for six years, I can personally attest that every single year, the numbers of people who are listening to podcasts like this and making YouTube videos from alternative perspectives, etc., is exponentially growing. And that's not something that I'm saying just out of hand. I think that's something that's demonstrable in my own life, and I would assume for a lot of the people out there who a few years ago may have had a lot more trouble talking about these types of issues than they do now. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. I think the economic Armageddon that we're watching unfold is probably one of the uh, the main ones that are affecting people's consciousness and allowing them to open up to alternative ideas. But whatever the case may be, I think we see the, the chorus growing, as it were. And the, loud, the louder that chorus gets, the, the larger the choir swells, I think the more people are willing to and able to understand some of the underlying concepts that we've been talking about, so that now broaching a conversation about false flag terrorism is a lot easier than it was even five years ago. There is also a flip side to this, just as we can provide social validation for those who are willing to go out on a limb and question the uh, the paradigm that they're they're laboring under, so too can we provide another service, as it were, although I'm sure many people wouldn't see it that way, but that's we can also withhold our social interactions from those who are unwilling to step out and unwilling to question the system. Those who are going along to get along can be socially ostracized for that decision. And that is one of the most powerful and most understated powers that people have, is their ability to simply withhold social interaction from people who are implicitly or explicitly doing evil in the service of whatever the system may be trying to get them to do. And that can take many different forms, and I'm not necessarily talking about going out and and saying to all of your friends, go get away from me, I don't want to talk to you anymore. But certainly it can come to that point where you just don't want to have anything to do with someone because they will not open their mind to any of these ideas or concepts. And it can come to that point. Again, that's another extremely powerful tool that can be used to to hasten this cultural revolution, the revolution of the mind, which again is the only one that matters. Now, I'm not unaware that there needs to be a lot more specific details about fleshing out exactly what types of things that it is we need to be combating within our current paradigm, but to a certain extent, I think that's what we've been detailing and cataloging and bearing witness to over the past five years here at the Corbett Report, and one could take almost any one of the issues that we cover and think of that broadly as an issue where there are a lot of people who are within a certain paradigm of thinking about that issue and which there is a whole other host of information that points to a very different way of looking at those issues and we need to affect the the uh, the transfer the the shunting of people from one railway track into the other one so that they can understand the world from a different perspective now once again that is the revolution that matters, because that is the one that will allow people to understand not only that there is an agenda, but how to avoid the agenda that we are being put into, placed onto, the the one that has already been created around us and that we're simply being steeped in little by little. And that is the technocratic revolution that 
the other side wants to affect, the one that they want to put us into by default. Once again, the only way we can avoid that is by literally thinking our way out of the box. And it's going to take all of us working together, and also all of us working together in a social sense as well. That's why forming offline communities, forming groups, study groups even, about the New World Order, or whatever particular topic it is that you are interested in is so important and that was one of the hopeful things i think about the occupy movement was the teach-ins and the chance for people to come together and share and exchange ideas that is ultimately what it's about and again it can take place online as well but offline social validation probably has a million times more social capital to it than that's than the online version but in whatever form it comes we have to get people engaged with these issues thinking about these issues and willing to question the history that we have simply been received and steeped in without looking at the actual documentable history about how there is an agenda that has been set up by people with wealth in every possible sense of that term, including power, and who are trying to shunt us into a future where their power will be perpetuated for infinity and ours will be reduced to null. So at the end of the episode, I know that there's been an awful lot in terms of big scale and scope and sweep of things and very little in terms of everyday details. So I hope we can flesh, continue to flesh that out on the podcast and on my radio broadcast and in my other work besides. But at least I hope that I have done something to flesh out this concept of the revolution of the mind, the cultural revolution, the shunting to a different paradigm, a new way of thinking about the world, which really will happen and is happening as we speak, but will happen in a substantive way when there's a certain threshold, a certain amount of peer pressure built up for other people to to join the chorus, as it were. So we'll have to start thinking about ways to continue building our uh, communities and leveraging our social capital to make these types of conversations the ones that matter, and hopefully to get at least a few more people to unplug from the Matrix. And on that note, that's all for today. I'm your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Make your contribution with you around.